0: invite you to turn in your Bibles to first Peter 5 9 to 14 if you don't have one with you there should be a little black Bible underneath the rack of the chair in front of you or in your row last week we touched up we finally got to touch upon Peter's reason for giving us this Uh, what really feels like a staccato list of fundamental attitudes. And while Peter says them uh, just rapid fire, it's taken a little bit of time for us to get through these closing exhortations uh, at the end of his first epistle. The reason for these fundamental attitudes for Christians to have is that there is a very real devil who poses a very real threat who is trying to inflict real harm to you and to the church that is the context of this letter that there is a real living threat to christians christian face real peril because of their faith in the first century until 70 a.d much of this uh, of this peril much of the means for which satan was inflicting harm to the church came as persecution at from the hands of jews the jews during the intertestamental period or around 161 bc had had acquired a privileged status they were called friends of rome not many not every nation got to be friends of rome or friends of Caesar. And what this meant is that they were allowed considerable measures of self-government. Romans, uh, and because Romans saw Christians not as a distinct body of, of believers, but really as a subsect. They're just one group of Jews. They're a part of the Jewish body. And and because of that, because of the Jews' right for self-governance, the Romans look at uh, at the Jews persecuting Christians, and they go, well, that's an internal affair. We're, we're going to look the other way. And you can see an example of this in Acts 8, when Saul of Tarsus was granted authority by the chief priests of Jerusalem and going as far as the city of Tarsus in Syria, outside of Israel's jurisdiction, obtaining and arresting and bringing back Christians so as to put them in prison. And what did Rome do? Absolutely nothing. And even after Saul of Tarsus converted to the Christian faith and became the Apostle Paul, we still see as you chronicle through the book of Acts, you still see who shows up on the scene just just after the Apostle Paul shows up. Just after he arise, arrives and begins evangelizing and makes converts to the Christian faith, who shows up? Nine times out of ten, it's the Jews. And they make life hard for Paul and for the rest of the evangelical, evangelistic missionaries. And this would happen until 70 A.D. when the Jews forfeited their friends of Rome status. Do we know what happened in 70 A.D.? The Jews had rebelled against Rome. They they had allowed themselves to get caught up uh, through the zealots. That was a a political party that incited rebellion. They rebelled against Rome thinking that they were going to repeat the miraculous victories that Judas Maccabus had acquired around 200 B.C., and they did not, and they lost, and they lost hard. And so with Jerusalem in flames, raised to the ground, the Jews had lost their friend's status. And you would think, now it's not going to be quite so bad to be a Christian, right? The Jews are going to let up a little bit. Well, where the Jews had now stopped, the Romans were more than happy to step up to the plate and do their share. Christians, There were Christians now, by this point, everywhere. And where the Jews didn't quite so much evangelize. They didn't proselytize that much. Christians did. They were everywhere, and they were multiplying everywhere. And pagans, as they converted to Christianity, that left huge ripples in pagan society. And you can see an example of this in Acts 19. Turn there if you'd like. Acts 19. I'm going to read this as well so you can follow with me. Verse 23, Acts 19, 22. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way, which is that's another way of saying the faith for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business. In other words, a lot of business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades. And he said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business and on me keeping the page to the right place. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess be regarded as worthless and that she and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And from there, they descend into madness. That kind of thing happened all over. And Nick Needham in his first volume of 2,000 Years of Christ's Power says that the determining factor in, that would prompt or motivate local Roman rulers to persecute Christians was to ask themselves, If I put the heat on the Christians, will that appease the angry mobs? Will it satisfy the anger of the people if I throw these Christians into a prison, if I have them tortured, if I have them punished and flogged and executed? That's exactly what happened with Jesus and Pilate. Did Pilate or Herod, for that matter, did anybody find any fault with Jesus? No, what was the determining factor that prompted Pilate to go ahead with it? The people wouldn't quiet down. And they demanded his blood, and he said, fine. And that model provided the pattern for the next about 200 years of church history. So Satan uses the world's systems. He uses governments. He uses unbelieving people as tools to afflict Christians these are but a sampling of the means he uses to inflict to afflict Christians and so to identify as as Daniel was saying this morning during Equip to identify as a Christian was costly it could and often did require much last week we briefly looked at job and how satan afflicted him and we didn't have time to do a comprehensive study permit me if i take just a moment to uh, fill in just a little bit of the gaps as to what the rest of Scripture says about our foe. 2 Corinthians 4 4 says that He is the God of this world who blinds unbelievers. And Ephesians 2 2 says that He enslares, ensnares and enslaves unbelievers so that they walk according to His pattern, according to His power, with the effect that they obey His intent and His will. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 2.26, that those who are spiritually senseless are held captive by him, by the devil, so that they do his will. We saw already in Job 1-3 through that Satan can ruin life. He can take health. He can take wealth. He can also te- he can also afflict by tempting with wealth. If you remember in the in Jesus's temptation, what did Jesus, what did Satan tempt Jesus with? Here are all the kingdoms of the world. So he can tempt by taking away things. He can tempt by alluring with things. Luke eleven eighteen says that he has an army of demons through whom he can afflict people. He may not have to do it himself, but he has a whole host. of, that he can utilize. Job 1:16 says that he can use supernatural disasters. The text says that fire, the fire of God, fell from heaven. That's supernatural. Job 1:15 and 17 tells us that he can incite social disasters. The Sabians and the Chaldeans had formed raids and had captured Job's servants. They had captured his children. They had killed his servants. Job one nineteen says he can incite natural disasters. A wind from the wilderness came and collapsed the house. He tempts through false teachers. He even tempts us in our marriage. And for your for those who are taking notes, First Corinthians seven five, First Peter three seven, both warn us that succumbing to sin and having mer- a lack of harmony in our marriage leaves leads to powerless prayer. He tempts us through our marriage. He tempts the church body into into being in a state of self-absorption so that we can be so focused with self. We can be so focused and absorbed on our wants and our needs, on our agendas, on our rights, so that Christian love is utterly neglected, so that there is no harmony or unity among God's people. He tempts pastors to sins. He, he delights when Christian pastors are found guilty of egregious sins, of sins that are shockingly bad. And you don't have to search very far to find examples of that. And when this happens, those who are to be leaders of God's people are found to be hypocrites and they are rendered unfit, unqualified for their duty. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Well, if we look briefly at Luke twenty-two thirty-one to 32, where Satan informs Peter that, uh, Jesus informs Peter that Satan has demanded permission to sift him like wheat. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. What's the result of Jesus' prayer? So that your faith may not fail. So what does Satan want? The opposite, that Peter's faith, that the disciples' faith would all fail. That is the goal of Satan's sifting and tempting and afflicting, is that those who profess faith in Christ, that their faith might be found hollow and tossed aside and fail. John Piper gives us this picture When he says to imagine that Satan has a big sieve or like a a big metal colander. And it has jagged edge wires forming a mesh with holes shaped like faithless men and women. And what he aims to do is to take and he throws people into this sieve and he shakes them around. He shakes them around over these jagged edges until they're torn and weak and desperate that they let go of their faith and fall through the the sieve as faithless people right into Satan's company. Faith cannot fall through the mesh. It's the wrong shape. So as long as the disciples hold on to their faith trusting in the power and goodness of God for their hope, they will not fall through the mesh. Well said John Piper. And I would add too that faith will prevent you from being swallowed down the gullet of the lion. So what do we do? How do we respond to this real devil and his afflictions? Well, this leads us to the final six attitudes that we're to have. The final six fundamental attitudes for Christians as found in the last few verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. First we'll look at in verse 9 is an attitude of fortitude. We are to firmly resist the devil And as we're doing that, we are to have an attitude of hope, verse 10. We are to hope in the person and the work and the promises of our God. And because of our hope and the surety that our hope will be be found sure and concrete, we are to have an attitude of worship, in verse 11. And then Peter will again exhort us to have an attitude of faithfulness as we're as we're urged again to be faithful. And he he helps us and gives us a model of faithfulness in a servant. Fifthly, we will be we will see love and expressed and modeled. We're to have an attitude of love in verse thirteen and fourteen. And then finally, as he closes verse fourteen, as the Because of everything that's been said, at the conclusion of all that has been said, we are to have peace. So fortitude, hope, worship, faithfulness, love, and peace. The final six crucial, fundamental attitudes for Christians. Let's read the text. 1 Peter 5, 9 through 14, Peter says, But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Now let's consider this first attitude in in this portion of the text today, the attitude of fortitude. The attitude of fortitude, verse 9, look, he says, but resist him. He, He is waging war against you. He is looking to devour you, but you are to resist him. This literally means take a stand. Take a stand. This is a defensive posture. He is, he is bringing on the onslaught. You are to defend against him. And this means that we don't go on the offensive. This does not mean that we are called to bind or to cast out or to declare victory or dominion or authority or to take ground or to campaign against The devil. These are the kind of things, and there are so many examples of of this that I'm tempted to bring up, but time doesn't permit. But these are the things that TBN and Charisma Mag and people will tell you that you must be doing. And they will spend pages and pages and pages and hours exhorting you to fight against the devil. And the, the content of the argument does not come from the pages of sacred scripture, but from their own whims. We are not called to fight, to go on the offensive against the devil. If, if you are familiar with Acts 19, 11 to 20, the sons of Sceva, they were they were sons of a Jewish prophet or a Jewish priest who thought that they could cast out the devil. They can go on the offensive. And at the conclusion, for those who aren't familiar, the, de- the demon speaks to them. it's not he's not even the top guy it's 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 a it's a lieutenant or maybe a, a lower soldier demon he says jesus i know and paul i know but who are you and if you're if you know the story they don't leave as they came in all pomp and bold and strong they leave naked and wounded christians do not go on the offensive against the devil our God does. As Paul concludes Romans chapter 16, he says that the God of all grace, he will crush Satan under your feet. It's God who dispatches an angel and grants authority in Revelation chapter 20 to bind Satan in the abyss. It is God who will cast Satan and the beast and the demons into Hell at the end of Revelation. It is God who goes on the offensive, not us. We are not called to do that. This exhortation to resist him also means that we are not to look within ourselves for strength. We are not to be believing in ourselves. We are not to be spiritually pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. But rather, Peter says, what are we to be firm in? Not ourselves, but in the, the, the NASB says your faith. The, the, the Greek says it is the faith. This is one of few occasions where I wish the NASB translators would have done it differently. It is, Peter tells us to be firm in the faith. And I think why they say your faith is Peter did say just previously your enemy your adversary, the devil, prowls around. Peter had made it very personal. Perhaps the Nasby the, the NASB translators are trying to uh, provide some continuity. But be firm in the faith. This is the revelation of God. This is the revelation of who God is. This is the revelation of what God has done for you and what he has promised to do for you. We are to be strong and firm and solid and grounded and moored and anchored in the truth. In the body of truth that God has handed down to us in the scripture. This is a clarion call. This, this is God or, or Peter blowing the bugle saying be grounded in this. Be grounded in sound theology, in the truth of God and who he is and what he's done and what he said he will do. Be firm in that. Chris Roseborough said, he says that faith is like sight. It needs an object. It needs to be looking at something. So what I must ask you, what precisely are you, Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church? What are you looking at? What has your faith focused on? What has your faith latched onto? What is it settled on? What are you trusting when we talk about faith? Is, Is faith just a generic religious buzzword? In your life and in your mind and in your heart, it, does the function of faith, is, is that a fuzzy thing? Is, is its purpose not really nailed down or clear? Is is the content obscure? Or do you know the God of the Bible? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you Know him and are you excited to learn about him? Are you excited when we are reminded by the truth of who Jesus is? And what he has done. We just celebrated Easter two weeks ago. Have we already forgotten the marvelous truths that the God man, that the eternal second person of the Trinity wrapped himself in flesh that the, the immortal, invisible, unchangeable, indestructible, everlasting God wrapped himself in mortality so that that which could not suffer could now suffer and die as a, as a ransom for sins. Do we glory in that? Do we love that? Do we love him and his person? Do we cherish his promises? Are we comforted by his promises by the promise that he is coming back for us. Does that comfort you, SVBC? Do you love to learn about him? and are, Do you love to be reminded about him? Be fortified and made strong in the faith so that you may resist the devil. And Peter knows this is hard. Peter knows this is hard. So he offers some encouragement. He follows up verse 9. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, believer, you are not alone in your suffering. You are not alone in your suffering. What does that mean? The same experiences are being accomplished. The same sufferings. The same struggles being brought on by the same devil on Christians elsewhere in the world. They are likewise exhorted by God through Peter to be fortified, just as you're being told to today. They are told, they are exhorted to be fortified in the same faith, to trust in the same God, and rest in the same grace that will deliver them. That's the same grace that will deliver you. It's the same grace that will sustain you. And they in you will enjoy the same sweet victory in Jesus Christ. The same experiences are being accomplished. You are not alone. And this leads us to our next fundamental attitude, the attitude of hope in verse 10. Hope in verse 10. Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He began to comfort us by saying, you're not alone in your suffering. And he gives us four more comforts to consider. Four more comforts to think about. The first is to consider the duration of your suffering. How long does Peter say that you will suffer? How long? For a little while. And we, have, we must confess that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of being in the furnace, it often seems overbearing and, and, and limitless. It seems when you're in the thick of it that there's absolutely no end. But many, if not most, can look back after the hard part has passed and see that God's grace caused us to come through it. And we look back and we go, that wasn't that hard. But yet there are others who are called to endure suffering for the rest of their lives. To them, I would exhort you what Peter has already said in First Peter 4.19, to entrust yourself to a faithful creator who always does what is right. And Jesus Himself said to those, uh, to, to a church, one of the seven churches of Galatia, in Revelation twenty ten, Jesus said, "Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life." For many, the suffering is for a little while. For some, the suffering is for the rest of their life. But Christ himself says that he will reward you with the crown of life. And his strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. His mercies and his graces are enough to endure. So to cons- So first, consider the duration of your suffering. Second is to consider the character of God in your suffering. What title does Peter give to God as you continue in verse 9? Verse 10, I apologize. After you've suffered for a little while, the who? The God of all grace. And this sounds just like. When Paul calls God the Father of mercies, this is Second Corinthians one three. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, and I love what he says here. He says, uh, "Blessed be the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions." I wrote this really small on my notes, so I got to look down. So that we, he comforts us in our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so too are our comforts abundant in Christ. When God comforts us, He doesn't give us just a little. He gives us an abundance of comfort. He is a comforting god look back up at verse 7 why on what basis can peter tell us to cast all of our anxiety on him why because he's the god who cares for you he is a caring compassionate god third consider the calling of god he's the god of all grace who has verse 10 called you to his eternal glory in christ he's he's called you to a glory that is eternal if he's done that he's not going to allow some temporal circumstance to undermine that to get in the way he's not going to allow some temporary thing some temporary affliction to be a monkey wrench that gets in the gears and messes everything up. God's not going to allow that if he's called you to his eternal glory. I love Colossians 3, 4. It says our life is hidden with Christ. And we will, verse 4, one day be revealed with him in glory. Christian, that is your future. And as Paul elaborates in the conclusion of Romans 8... He says that God, he, the argument is God has set his love upon you and he provides a huge list of things that in our flesh we may think that might separate us from the love of God. That's a pretty intimidating thing. Sword, peril, famine. But what does Paul say? None of these things. None of these things will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. So consider the calling of God. Fourth, consider the response of God to your suffering. This is w- what will God do as a consequence or or because of our suffering. Verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you, he will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, And establish. Now these these are all construction, build, buildingy, building terms, and they're really virtually synonyms. They 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 have slight variances, but they mean pretty much the same things. To perfect is the idea of bringing something to, to wholeness, to completion, to confirm to means to set straight, to 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 fix firmly. To strengthen is to make sturdy, to fortify, to make solid. To establish is to – it has the idea of laying a foundation and putting something on that foundation so that it's secure, it's fastened, it's, it's unmovable. And there's two ways that we can look at this. There, there's two, I guess you could say, tenses that we could look at this promise that he will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. First is looking at this in the immediate or the, or now. We see that God uses our strength. This has been Peter's argument in the whole book. He uses our sufferings to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish our faith in this life. And that's precisely what we saw in Job. That's precisely what we saw in Peter. Both men were made better, as someone said, more better good because of their sufferings. I think you can see this abundantly clear in Peter. The Peter that you see and read about in the Gospels, the, the Peter that often puts his foot in his mouth in the Gospels is not the same Peter that you read in the book of Acts. He has been strengthened and confirmed and established and perfected just a little bit, wouldn't you say? Consider, go, go, we're going back to Luke twenty-two, thirty-two, 32, where, where Jesus told him Satan wants to sift you, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Jesus tells him, after you have turned again, strengthen your brother. So Peter was allowed to go through the sifter, and then Jesus strengthened him with the effect and result that he would then be more uh, applicable and equipped and uh, able to strengthen others. That's the same word. It's not the third word, strengthen, in that list. It's actually the, the word confirm. Peter was fixed firmly, so now he can help firmly fix others. So God promises to use our sufferings to make our faith stronger, to Make our focus more honed on spiritual and eternal things, as, especially as the dross of temporary desires and things that ultimately don't matter. And we begin to realize that. I mean, isn't that true in our suffering that we, get, we begin to see that these things that we've invested our time and our energy and ourselves into, they don't really matter. And we're a little more willing to let those things go. We become more focused. We become more honed. We become more effective in our Christian perspective or in our Christian practice as our, as our perspective becomes more biblical. As our joy, even in the midst of suffering, as our joy becomes more constant. Doesn't suffering help us to be more joyful, more consistently? We become more sympathetic in our compassion. Precisely what Paul was saying in Second in Corinthians 1.3, we become better equipped to comfort because we have been comforted. And what God intends us to be in the future requires us to experience a little pain now. And God promises to build us up through that. So there, there, is, there is an immediate sense in which God perfects us now in this life through and in and from our suffering. But then there's also a future aspect in that being perfected, being confirmed and established and strengthened will be, I would say, the most realized, the most manifest, the most evident when we are glorified. If you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this, about our, about the truth of our glorified body. 1 John 3, 2, John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We're, we're in God's workshop, as it, as it were. Positionally, we are we are fully forgiven, but practically, we are still being made to look more like Christ. We know, going back to what John says, we know that when he appears, Jesus, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. That is when God's masterpiece in how he's forming us will be unveiled. So there's a now sense of being strengthened in our sufferings, but there's also the then sense. And I, I very much look, we, we appreciate the now, don't we? But I look forward to the then. And all of this is God's doing So be mindful of him. Be mindful of his character. And we see that hope in God mixed with trust leads us to the next important fundamental attitude, and that is an attitude of reverent worship. Being mindful of what God does and being mindful of his faithfulness and of his character to do what he says he's going to do and not ever letting us down leads us to worship how could it not Peter says in verse 11 to him be dominion forever and ever amen he he Peter is himself modeling this attitude of worship he does this through what, what we call a doxology doxology this is a sudden abrupt outburst of praise and the other New Testament writers do this. I think the two most evident is Paul in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, and Romans 12, 33 to 36. The second one's a little more lengthy. I'm not going to quote either. But look at the end of Ephesians 3 and the end of Romans 12 for an example of the New Testament writers making a theological point. And then as they, are, they, realize, they think about what they have just written, what what they know to be about God, and what they have just used in their argument to exhort others, it actually leads them to sudden praise and worship. It overwhelms them. It it, it wows them. And there's no wonder that Peter is utterly and unashamedly wowed here. I mean, think about what God has done. He has forgiven our sins at the cost, at the cost of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He has forgiven and reconciled sinners. He has made us his children. He has promised to use our sufferings and our trials to make us more Christ-like and to, to work together for our Good he has promised to preserve us and to strengthen us through our suffering and beloved Peter has seen this first hand he himself has experienced what it is to be to be strengthened and to be confirmed and established and perfected in his sufferings. Peter knows that God will be gracious. And that he will be compassionate. Because for him, God has already been gracious and compassionate. Peter has tasted that already. So yes, says Peter, yes, let that God, let that God who has been so good to me, let him have dominion. That, this is a word which means uh, speaks of one's ability or right to rule or to reign or to captivate to subjugate yes let that faithful creator who always does what is right always does what is right let him be king let him rule over me and my life let him be at the helm and let him stay at the helm because quite frankly he does a fantastic job and he does a better job than i would be if i were in his shoes let him be the captain of my life Let him remain precisely where he is. Let him continue to do precisely as he pleases to do because everything he does is so very good. So, yes, let that one have the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Worship. An attitude of worship. Then we come to the fourth attitude today, the attitude of faithfulness. And again, he, he pleads for firmness and for fortitude in the faith. But as he does so, he brings up the faithfulness of this fellow worker in the ministry, Sylvanus. He, he says, through Sylvanus. So the, the argument of the book is definitely over. And he is this is the final, the final words. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. It's only taken me two years to get through it. But I've written to you briefly... Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, he says through Sylvanus, And there's three options as to what this means. Sylvanus could have been an amanuensis. He could have been a secretary. And Peter is dictating and writing, which would mean that Sylvanus would have had to have been skilled in writing. Uh, most people could read but not everyone had the means to write. You had to practice writing, and the writing material, you know, you couldn't just go down to the Walmart and buy a a pack of of 150 sheets of lined paper for 99 cents. Paper and ink and quills were costly, and to to be a good writer, you needed to practice. So he he could have been a a skilled writer and secretary, or through Sylvanus could mean that he was the delivery boy. He was the mailman for Peter, And he was the one actually delivering, you know, walking. And this would have required him to have a strong set of legs to to traverse the hundreds of miles of the regions of Galatia. If you look back in in, uh, the the beginning verse, uh, there's about nine or ten regions that Peter is writing to. And Sylvanus would have had to have ferried this letter, copies of this letter, to each one. Or he was both. Probably the third one that... Silvanus did both. Now, who is this Silvanus? He is probably Silas, who was a frequent companion of Paul. Silas is someone repeatedly mentioned in Paul's letters. He was a very helpful servant of the Lord and utterly invaluable to Paul and to Peter and to others. And so for, for his service, for his faithfulness, Peter fondly calls him, not just my faithful brother, what does he say? Our faithful brother. He he's including his readers as benefactor, as beneficiaries, as those who benefit from the faithfulness of Sylvanus. Now what is this what is it that this faithful brother was doing here? We see that he is entrusted with the true grace of of God. And he is charged by Peter and by the church that's commissioned him to deliver this true grace of God to the people of God who need it. And what's he talking about? He's talking about the whole message. He's talking about the whole letter, this component of sacred scripture. And I can't think of a higher honor for a faithful brother to have than to be entrusted with the word of God you know, again, this isn't Peter's musings. This isn't a nice poem. This isn't a hand-drawn picture of his kitty cat. This is the eternal, inspired, inerrant Word of God. If you turn to Second Peter, or make a, make a note, don't turn. But Second Peter three sixteen shows us where Peter refers to the writings of Paul's. The apostles knew even in the time that they wrote them, they knew that God was using them to write scriptures, the scriptures. So Peter knows what he's what he's entrusting, what he is giving to Silvanus to give to the church. Silvanus was faithful to receive the word of God given to Peter. Silvanus was faithful to commit the word of God to the church, to me and to you. And so Peter charges you and I charge you alongside Peter. Be firm in this. This is the grace of God. Are we standing in it? Or are we trifling in it? And just to be clear, I'm not talking about this bound piece of a compilation of pages with printing with this nice leather skin. Nor am I talking about any particular NIV or NASB or ESV, but the revealed compilation of God's word, the faith, the scriptures. Stand firth, firm in the truth that this reveals. not the paper it's the message it's, it's the truth conveyed in the paper fifth an attitude of love and just as sylvanus illustrated faithfulness we see peter we see the church and we see mark modeling love peter writes she who is in babylon ch- ch- uh, chosen together with you send our greetings Send you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now she's who's in Babylon. We we actually talked about this earlier this morning in the equip hour. We did a survey of First Peter. She is a, a, a reference to the church. We see John doing the same thing, referring to the church where he wrote from as a as the elect lady. And there's a, there was a need to use code because, as we said earlier, as we began today, we were we were reminded. There was persecution in the first century. And if Peter goes around identifying where he is and, and where the Christians are, people could track them down and bring on the hurt. And to avoid that, he uses a code name. It's possible he wasn't. There was, as Daniel said, there was a some obscure outpost somewhere named Babylon. There was the actual Babylon who by this point had faded into obscurity. But most people say this was Rome. And consider this, Rome was the capital of the pagan world in the first century, just as Babylon was in the centuries prior to Rome's elevation to power. The real Babylon, as I said, was quite obscure by now. Traditional and early church testimony uh, says that Peter went to and died in Rome. And it would make sense for the fact that if Peter was there, which... Uh, church history says he was, that he would use a code name to protect the identity of the church and the people from whom he was with. And so he uses this this reference to a, a, this obscure town that it, as the Roman pagans, it, it, if this letter were recovered, a, a Roman would look at this and go, Babylon, never heard of it, but a Jewish Christian. Those who were, un, who were familiar with the Old Testament and had been trained and taught by the disciples, that there would be an obvious connection there. So in all likelihood, he's writing from Rome. Wherever they are from, he and the church and Mark, his son Mark, send their greetings. Now, who's Mark? Are we talking about his biological son? No, this is his son in the faith, just as Timothy was for Paul. This is John, Mark, John being his Jewish name, Mark being his Greek name, his mother's house. Uh, we read in Acts was the early church, uh, early church's assembly point. It's where they met. He is Barnabas' cousin, Barnabas being one of the apostolic uh, evangelists that went out with Paul. You can read about that in Acts 13. And so he goes out on, their, on Paul's first missionary journey, and then just as things begin to get tough, he abandons them. Acts 13, 13, he returns to Jerusalem. And this rift, this rift was so sharp that in when Paul and Barnabas are gearing up to go out on, on their second missionary journey, Barnabas, remember Barnabas is Mark's cousin, he wants to take Barnabas. Paul says, no way, Jose. And such a sharp rift uh, occurs between them that Paul and Barnabas actually split. and Barnabas takes Mark. Guess who Paul takes? Silas. And Silas, I would say, is the shortened name for Silvanus. So Silvanus is with Mark, ministering with Mark in Rome. And here's what I think happened. Well, let me also say, eventually Paul and, and, and Mark were reconciled. Eventually. By, by the end of Paul's life, uh, they had reconciled. But Peter here calls him my son. And this is what I think happened. I think John Mark comes back with his tail between his legs. We don't know anything about, about why he left. We don't know if he was tempted. Presumably he was, he was tempted or sifted, and his, his faith, his commitment to the endeavor failed. And he comes back defeated. He comes back with his leg between his legs. And I think Peter saw him, and he says, I've seen that face before. I've seen it in me. I think he instantly felt compassion, having been there before, having been sifted. I think he reached out to Mark. I think he took him under his wing. I think he discipled him and invested in him. I think he strengthened Mark. And he did for Mark what Jesus had done for Peter. So that eventually, when Paul would see him later, he could say, that's not the same Mark. That's not the same Mark that I knew. And so they all, Peter and the church and Mark, send their affectionate greeting to the churches and they can't be there to, to 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 give a tangible expression so they 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 want to make their affection felt so they so Peter tells them to kiss one another with a holy kiss now those of you know that i am a i am firmly committed to a literal hermeneutic but i am willing to let this one slide just for your understanding uh this was a civil and pleasant way to show affection. It was entirely non-sexual. Men would, would give a, a brief kiss, um, I'm presuming on the cheek, to the men and women to women. The, the, the genders did not kiss one another. But he does that so that his affection, so that the whole church's affection would be tangible and felt. And then he sa- concludes with the last attitude. An attitude of peace. He says, look as he concludes, Peace be to you all who are in Christ. This is a common phrase. It's a common phrase, but it is when you consider what has been said, it is so rich. When we think about who God is, that he is the God who upholds you, the God who cares for you, what he has done He's given you an inheritance. He has made you a living stone built upon Christ as the cornerstone. He promises to always do what is right. He promises to perfect and and confirm and strengthen and establish you. So yes, to you who are in that Christ, peace to you.